Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're going to do John Dunn Scotus. John Dunn Scotus was born in 1265 or 1266, give or take. He died in 1308. He was born in Duns, Scotland, hence the Duns. He studied theology at Oxford in the 1280s. He then became a Franciscan friar in Northampton in 1291. In 1302, he came to France, and there he got caught up in a French political crisis. He was expelled from France in 1303 after taking Pope Boniface VIII's side in a dispute with King Philip IV. It's about 20 years before Marsilius of Padua published Defensor Pacis. You remember the Marsilius episode. This is a conflict between not the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope, but the King of France and the Pope, about 20 years before. To give you a little bit of background, Philip IV allied with the Scots against King Edward I, King Edward Longshanks. Philip hoped to incorporate Gascony into France. But the war proved expensive, and in 1296, Philip decided to raise money by levying a tax on the clergy, enraging the church. Boniface responded with a papal bull forbidding the French clergy to transfer assets to the state without papal approval. Philip responded by forbidding bullion from leaving France, obstructing Rome's revenue. In that particular instance, the Pope ultimately backed down. He needed that money from France. But then in 1301, Philip IV charged a papal legate, Bernard Sassé, with inciting insurrection. Sassé was convicted and imprisoned and put under the custody of the Archbishop of Narbonne, an ally of the king's. So now the king has got archbishops doing his bidding and not the pope's. Boniface VIII objected to the trial of a clergyman in a royal court. He decided to summon the bishops and abbots of France to take action, quote, for the preservation of the liberties of the church. When the bull calling the bishops and abbots to come to Rome was presented to Philip, one of Philip's friends, the Count of Artois, snatched the bull out of the hands of the papal emissary and threw it in the fire. Then, in February of 1302, the bull was officially burned in a state ceremony. In March, Boniface sent a papal legate to reassert papal control over the French clergy. Philip responded by calling the first French estates general in response. Uh, scholars of the French Revolution will be familiar with the Estates General as the meeting that's called the start of the French Revolution. In this instance, all three estates, the clergy, the nobles, and the people, wrote to Rome in support of Philip's temporal power. But around 45 French ecclesiastical officials nonetheless attended Boniface in Rome in October of that year. In November, Boniface then issued another bull, the Unam Sanctum, asserting papal authority in both the temporal and spiritual realms. He said, 
For with truth is our witness, it belongs to spiritual power to establish the terrestrial power and to pass judgment if it has not been good. Furthermore, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. In April of 1303, the Pope excommunicated all persons who impeded French clerics from coming to the Holy See, implicitly including Philip. In August, the Pope suspended the right of all persons in France to name regents and doctors of the church, including the right of the king, reserving to the Holy See the right to make all clerical appointments until Philip submitted an explanation of his behavior to the papal court. In September, a French army attacked Boniface, and Boniface explicitly excommunicated Philip by name. The the French, it was a relatively small force of irregulars, of people in Italy who did not like the Pope, organized by the French. They received help from a Roman nobleman known as Giacomo Schiara Colonna. Schiara had been excommunicated by Boniface following a land dispute in 1297. He allied with the French and helped them attack Boniface. They managed to lay siege to the papal palace and demand Boniface's abdication. When Boniface refused to abdicate the papacy, Schiara Colonna slapped him in the face. The Pope was then held in captivity for three days, and from what we can tell, he was badly beaten. When the villagers demanded his release, they let him go but the Pope died a month later of a violent fever. Schiara Colonna went on to crown Louis IV, Holy Roman Emperor, helping Louis and Marsilius of Padua challenge Pope John XXII. So this is a guy who's involved in both of these stories. The Pope's supporters, including John Duns Scotus, were allowed to return to France after Boniface's death. John Duns Scotus then became Franciscan Regent Master in Paris. He then transferred to Cologne, in Germany in 1307, and died the following year. His epitaph reads, Scotland bore me, England received me, France taught me, and Cologne in Germany holds me. So that's the basic background to the life. Let's get into the thought. John Duns Scotus was heavily influenced by Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, but he distinguishes his position from Aquinas's in certain fundamental respects. So when Scotus is disagreeing with Aquinas, it's scholastic on scholastic. This is internal debating within the scholastic tradition. So both Scotus and Aquinas agree that our knowledge of God starts with observing the natural world and observing creatures, right? However, Aquinas argues that we can only know God analogically. God exists in a way that is analogous to the way creatures exist, but not identical with the way they exist. Scotus, on the other hand, argues for univocal predication, a single concept of being. So, while God and creatures may have different natures, they have being in the same sense. Aquinas says that all concepts come from creatures. If this is true, then there can be no analogous concept of being that doesn't come from creatures. God will have to exist in a sense that is not just analogous to the sense in which creatures exist, but in a sense that is the very same. But there are still differences in the nature of God and creatures. So there are different natures, but one sense of being. 
this is an important part of the argument because some people will act as if SCOTUS is saying that God and creatures have the same nature, but he is subsuming these different natures under one concept of being and arguing that by suggesting that the being is only analogous, Aquinas is suggesting a need for another notion of being that we can't have, another concept of being that we can't have, right? This is a subtle distinction between being and nature. It's a distinction that a lot of people who engage with SCOTUS and people influenced by SCOTUS struggle with. They want to say that if there's being in the same sense, then they have the same nature. That's not what's being said, though. So, SCOTUS then says that God is infinite being, an infinite extension of the concept of being that comes from our knowledge of the sense in which creatures have being but an infinite extension of that concept, okay? Infinity for Scotus is not a negative apophatic concept, but a positive cataphatic one. By saying that God has infinite being, we are able to say something positive about what God is. So, how does this work? Well, think of some quality, say goodness, existing infinitely, so that there is no more goodness you can add to make that goodness any greater. You can't think of infinite goodness as composed of little bits of goodness. An angel is not better than a human being by some number of goodness bits. Goodness is an intrinsic, non-quantitative concept. In this way, infinite being is a measure of intrinsic excellence that is not finite, right? So God could therefore be described as infinite goodness or infinite power, but for Scotus, being is more fundamental and contains these other concepts. So if God has infinite being, then of course to have goodness is to be good, right? Or to have power is to be powerful. So in saying that God ha has infinite being, those other things are for Scotus incorporated in the notion of being that is being proposed. So this is a very big general concept of being that's being used. But often it gets conflated with more specific claims about nature. So what does Scotus have to say about natural law? Well, for Scotus, natural law contains only those moral propositions that are per se notae exterminis, that are self-evident in virtue of being analytically true. Because these moral truths are necessary, even God cannot make them false. Natural law, therefore, does not depend on God's will, and Scotus is therefore not a full-fledged divine command theorist. For Scotus, these moral propositions include the first three commandments. Those read, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Scotus says that if God exists, then he is to be loved as God, and nothing else is to be worshipped as God, and no irreverence is to be done to him. As the first three commandments describe how God is to be treated, they are for Scotus necessary analytic truths that you need to get ethics off the ground, right? Uh, if you don't have these things, then how would you even begin with Christian ethics? Scotus, however, picks on the third commandment a little bit. He argues that the third commandment is not entirely self-evident, as the Sabbath has been worshipped on different days at different points in history. He therefore revises it to God is to be worshipped at some time or other, 
but he decides that even that is not sufficiently self-evident, revising it further to God is not to be hated. So natural law plays a very limited role in Scotus's thought because it only covers really, really, really obvious necessary analytic claims or what Scotus takes to be really obvious necessary analytic claims. For all the other commandments, God assigns truth value to these further contingent moral propositions. We cannot know why God assigns the values he assigns. If it were obvious why, then those moral propositions would be self-evident and part of natural law. So all other commandments that come from God, we can't really say precisely why they are what they are. And we can't infer anything about natural law from those further commandments. So this is really significant because it's a much more restricted use of natural law than you tend to see in natural law theory. A lot of natural law theorists try to use natural law theory to make controversial moral claims. Hugo Grotius, for instance, in his discussion of how uh, Native American peoples or Islamic uh, states ought to treat Christians when they come and visit, is often used to accuse them of violating natural law so that it's possible for Christian states to make war on them for violation of natural law, especially Native American populations, right? One of the things that Hugo Grotius says is that Native American populations don't allow Western Christians free movement. They try to prevent people from crossing into the territory and they don't uh, fully cultivate the fields. They don't get the maximum uh, food production out of the fields and that therefore they're acting in violation of natural law and therefore it's okay to take the land from them. That's Hugo Grotius defending in in some way uh, colonialism. Uh, Notice that you can't use Scotus's version of natural law to do that kind of stuff because Scotus's version of natural law is very, very restricted to only the things that are self-evident. And claims about whether Native American uh, peoples should or shouldn't allow Westerners to walk through the territory or should or shouldn't uh, farm the land with varying levels of efficiency. Those are all things that are very far from being self-evident, right? Even remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is not self-evident enough as far as SCOTUS is concerned. So those kinds of further claims, those would not fit into natural law. Now that can be frustrating for some people because a lot of fans of scholastic natural law theory want to use it to make a lot of big sweeping claims about how everybody should behave. And Scotus's view does not really permit that, right? So Scotus also disagrees with Aquinas about freedom. So if you're not familiar, for Aquinas, we have two appetites, sense appetite, which is concerned with particulars, and intellectual appetite, which is concerned with universals. Since universals contain many particulars, Aiming at a universal gives us a choice over how to realize that universal. So, for instance, if you pursue the good, you can pursue it through many different discrete avenues. And this choice about how to realize the universal, the good, is for Aquinas where human freedom is. Right? By contrast, Aquinas denies that sense appetite is free, as sense appetite is concerned with particular things, you know, like eating and food or water or sex, right? Scotus offers a different view. For him, we have an affection for that which is advantageous, and we have an affection for that which is just. These are two different and distinct ways 
of trying to achieve the good in some sense. We can pursue the good by pursuing that which is advantageous or that which is just, right? But SCOTUS is going to differentiate these two versions of what might be good for us. SCOTUS associates that which is advantageous with our happiness, and he associates that which is just with the contingent moral proposition to propositions assigned truth value by God. This implies that for Scotus, what makes us happy can conflict with God's laws. And this means that Scotus denies eudaimonism, the idea that what contributes to human happiness or human flourishing is what is the human good. Instead, he says, obeying God's commands may not make us happy, and disobeying God may make us happy. But when this is the case, obeying God is what is properly good, and what makes us happy isn't good at all. So, as you can see, this further corrodes a lot of what people use uh, natural law theories to do. If you say, well, it's, you know, uh, or, or uh, Stoic, you know, original Stoic theories. We talked on the Chrysippus episode about following the things that appear natural for human beings. What appears natural for human beings is what they ought to do. Uh, Scotus shrinks the natural dramatically to only a very narrow range of things. And then beyond that, what's advantageous, what might strike us as as a preferred indifferent, for him has nothing to do with what's good, because that is determined by God's law. And God's law and what might strike us as a preferred indifferent are, you know, don't have to have anything at all to do with each other. Because to suggest that they do shrinks what God is able to do. God must be able to, because he is omnipotent, make laws that have nothing to do with what happens to be naturally, uh, you know, to seem naturally good for us or to seem like a preferred indifferent. And to suggest that what, you know, God's moral law has to align with what it is that's easy for us to do or that we're capable of doing or that we can do with some effort, uh, to do that uh, is to reduce the scope for what God is able to do morally and ethically. God is able to make all kinds of moral and ethical laws that have nothing to do with what makes us happy or makes our lives go smoothly from our own point of view. So, if we refuse to broaden natural law in this way, yeah, as you can see, human flourishing just doesn't get built into it, and natural law ceases to have this eudaimonistic character, and it becomes very different from the natural law theories that we might associate with the scholastic Aristotelians or with the Stoics. And you can see a little bit of an implication here. And this is an implication I'm drawing. Scotus doesn't straightforwardly say this. But if Philip is right, if King Philip is right about the need to tax church property to secure France's advantage, it may nonetheless be the case that what makes France flourish may violate God's law. And if that's the case, what you ought to do is God's law, even if that conflicts with the flourishing of France or the happiness of France or the advantage of France. Now, Scotus does have some specific things to say about property. Before the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, Scotus holds that there was no property. He quotes Augustine, Remove the emperor's laws, and who will dare say, this is my farm? For Scotus, property rights are not backed by natural law, because again, natural law is much more circumscribed on this view. They must instead come from positive law. Positive law is grounded on political authority, the right to exercise authority over those outside the family, and it comes from, quote, common consent and election on the part of the community. 
Therefore, quote, inasmuch as each person consents to the just laws passed by the community or the ruler, the community can transfer the ownership to anyone by means of a just law. Now, don't mistake this for an assertion of temporal power against the church, because people in the church are subject to the power of the papacy, and that's separate and distinct from the people who are in the community of France as such, right? So, Scota says, clergy can donate property to the state, but only when there is, quote, no prohibition either by a higher law or by a person on whom either party would depend for this transfer. A cleric, therefore, cannot, in certain cases, donate property, quote, without the will or, quote, at least against the will of the Pope. Now, the certain cases, the language certain cases is there in the original Scotus, but there's no further specifics given about cases. Because if you make this too specific and you make it apply in too straightforward a way to any particular issues, that can be a trouble spot for a theologian in this period. So we're left to extrapolate or not. The degree to which we extrapolate here depends on what we're comfortable with, how far this applies to the particular crisis that Scotus would have to be familiar with that we outlined at the start of the episode. So give you a little bit of of kind of the legacy, because there has been Scotus has had a a weird position in the history of thought. Uh, A lot of subsequent theorists have had uh, have tended to pick on him. During the Reformation, a lot of Protestants and humanists really did not like Scotus. Uh, His supporters were called the Dunsman, and they celebrated his subtlety. They called him the subtle doctor. But during the Reformation, those critics accused him of hair splitting and sophistry. And the English word dunce came out of the duns in Scotus's name. You may be familiar with the dunce cap. The dunce cap is said to have originated with a conical hat Scotus is said to have recommended to scholars, but the first mention of dunce cap in this pejorative sense is in 1791, almost 500 years after Scotus's death. So you can see in in the English case, in the British case, in part, I think because Scotus really did pack a significant amount of weight in theological discussions in Britain, hundreds of years after his death, it became necessary during the Protestant Reformation to denigrate him because he was a defender of the Pope and of the papal authority. He was eventually, by the way, beatified by the Catholic Church, though that beatification did not occur until, I believe, 1993. More recently, uh, drawing on Martin Heidegger, some contemporary philosophers criticized the degree to which Scotus's view is cataphatic by identifying God with infinite being and suggesting that being as a univocal concept, Scotus is accused of having taken the fundamental mysteriousness out of the concept of God, encouraging us to place too much emphasis on being and on ontology, the study of what has being. So, for instance, Scotus subordinates goodness to being, suggesting that goodness must have being in precisely the same way that creatures have being, right? Being, if you recall, is this big umbrella concept that includes being good or being powerful. This can be misleading 
as those who deny that the good has being in the same sense in which creatures have being might be led to deny that there is such a thing as the good, right? If you think that when Scotus says that the good has being in the same sense in which creatures have being, that might cause you to think that the good is material or uh, that it's made up of moral particles akin to matter. It might cause you to think that we're talking about the same nature here. And so if you deny that the good has the same nature as the creature, uh, you might think that that means that the good can't have being. So someone who doesn't understand the subtle distinction that Scotus draws between being and nature might be induced to conflate these things together. Uh, I think this is a misreading of Scotus when people do this conflation. He does claim that God and creatures have different natures, even though both have being. Scotus's critics might be understanding that concept of being more narrowly than Scotus himself does. They might be misreading it. And because for hundreds of years, Scotus has been picked on and made fun of and called a dunce, people may not be willing to be patient and pick apart the subtlety here. But I do think there is this, uh, I do think this subtlety is there. I think it matters. Uh, and I think that while there has been a corruption of Scotus's view that might play something like the kind of role that Heidegger talks about, uh, I don't think that's Scotus's own view, but a, a misreading of Scotus's view that comes about because of the way in which we tend to read the word being when we're doing metaphysics or uh, political philosophy. Uh, you know, when we use the word being, we tend to want to read it more narrowly as if it were the word nature. And we tend to conflate those things together. So uh, we tend to think that when Scotus says that they must have being in a univocal sense, that they, he must be saying that they have the same nature. We lose that subtle distinction. And maybe Scotus ought to be reproached for having worded it in such a way that that distinction could be so easily lost and the view could be so easily corrupted. I think it is a legitimate criticism of a theorist that their view is easy to misunderstand. Calling him the subtle doctor is in some ways another way of saying the easy to misunderstand doctor. Uh, but I do think, uh, you know, and I, I'm not a SCOTUS specialist, but if I'm able to spot that difference and articulate it to you and you're able to understand it, then maybe some of these people who are not seeing that distinction are butchering, butchering the reading. But I'm curious to hear what Alex thinks as he was looking at John Dunn Scotus, uh, what stood out to him? So, what did you think, Alex? Maybe talking a bit about natural law. Um, so, the wider sense of natural law is basically all the stuff that in the Ten Commandments concerns how humans treat each other and not how humans treat God. Um, yeah, surely that is before creation. And it's not like God can make that looser natural law not to be natural law unless he abandons creation or something, or makes it so different that it's unrecognizable. Well, uh, the emphasis that Scotus places is on the first tablet in the Decalogue. And the first tablet includes the original three commandments and not uh, th those first three, and not the ones that refer to human interactions with other humans. The implication seems to be that even stuff like thou shalt not kill is, is potentially not natural law on this view, uh, which is a, a very different kind of view from most natural law views that we tend to see. 
I think it has certain advantages, though, because I think once we start trying to incorporate how people treat each other into natural law, it becomes uh, an overgeneralizing concept that can be easily used to bludgeon populations that behave or think a little differently. Yeah, I mean, God can will against the looser natural law, like when he commands Abraham to kill Isaac and all these weird examples in the Bible. But it still is natural law. That's what I was trying to say. I think, whereas you're saying it's it's actually not, but I think some interpret, yeah. I, I, think, I think for SCOTUS, it, it, I don't think it, it is. I think that counts as you know, God's law, so still binding. Uh, one of the things that matters here is that for later natural law theorists, when natural law kind of gets out from under Catholicism and its understanding in the Catholic Church, it becomes this broader concept that natural law theorists like Grotius use to evaluate other states. And of course, Scotus's work precedes that. So in Scotus's own time, natural law would not be something that you subject non-Christian peoples to. And if they are following natural law, then you still uh, you know, treat them as you know, le- legitimate political states, legitimate interlocutors. At this time, I think for John Don Scotus, it would still be the case that because people are breaking God's law, they're still acting wrongfully. But that law is contingent on God's will and therefore not natural. Because for Scotus, if it were natural, then you wouldn't need God really to to tell you what it is because it would be analytically obvious. Which you know leads you to ask, well, why did the first three commandments need to be written down if they're analytically obvious? Why do they have to even really be given well, if they're straightforward? Maybe you would need God to tell you. I mean, when he discusses the example of... Um Something to do with our fallen nature. I'm not sure which sin it was. I think it was adultery. I don't know. Um, he basically says we can't, we need scripture to reveal it, but that doesn't mean that the scripture is what makes it wrong because, well, you know how when God creates the world, it's kind of, it's logically necessary, all the stuff that uh, once it's chosen. So once the possible becomes necessary, it, it's there. And you can use, like it's, uh, it depends if you, translate it maybe as uh, the rules as like something that's true or false or just command which is not true or false but if it is translated as a rule a precept then it's something that you can judge with uh, just your logic right you can infer it's necessary by logic not yeah yeah I guess I'm I'm kind of I'm a little bit hung up on this idea of self-evident right if natural law is only that which is self-evident then it would seem almost as if anything that were natural law doesn't really need stating. But maybe there does need to be, a, a, in, the, in the way that human beings are structured, maybe we have to be structured in such a way that that which is self-evident can be self-evident. Maybe part of that is being given or hearing the commandment. I think it was covetousness, by the way. It was like, we lack discernment, therefore we need God to just tell us. But it's not that like God builds a world with natural law. It's just it's like an epistemology. We we need God to tell us how to know it. But it's there before God. Yeah, yeah. This has a lot. To, a lot of the epistemology in Scotus is uh, focused around. We have to have a kind of sense experience that we can then abstract from. But uh, there are, are a few areas of exception where he suggests there are other ways we could know things. But not these would not be ways of knowing universals. They'd be knowing ways uh, uh, ways of knowing particulars. So, for instance, if you here, a uh, dog barking, there's uh, you know, the abstract universal where you learn about what a dog is you know, as a concept, as an abstract concept. Uh, but then there's 
knowing that there's a dog there that's barking. And for Scotus, that doesn't involve the usual kind of abstracting, but is a kind of intuitive move. Uh, that's one of the ways in which he is differentiated from Aquinas. Aquinas doesn't focus on these intuitive intellections, but uh, for Scotus, that's something that has to account for how we would say that you know, there's a dog right there. That's something that happens very quickly without the need for abstracting. Maybe God isn't forced by like that knowledge of what's good or bad to humans, but it's, he's still influenced by it because he has divine freedom. He could always choose not to create a world, but it's, it's not like there's, there's two things. There's a creating of the world and there's the commanding and they're two different things. When you create a world after that, it's like, it's kind of set in stone, maybe. Um, well, I think for Scotus, there's a lot of emphasis on, on allowing God to do things that may not make sense from our point of view. So people who try to broaden out natural law, they want to suggest that, well, God wouldn't do things to us that don't make sense from our point of view. You know, so you know, it, God wouldn't make it so that we flourish by doing something which is against God's law. That would be not, you know, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. But for Scotus to make those kinds of claims attempts to impose human limitations on what God can do based on uh, humans' uh, poor comprehension. And then the whole point of maybe rejecting Aquinas is that you don't want God to be constrained by these systems of intellect and stuff. And yeah, logic in and some ways Aquinas is kind of tying God down a little bit so that what God does will more straightforwardly accord with what is natural or what strikes us as natural. Uh, trying to use the concept of God uh, in combination with our observations about what tends to result in human flourishing to give a fuller account of ethics. And I think a lot of people are drawn to Aquinas for that reason. By making that move, Aquinas you know, gives um, you know, the concept of God a lot of ethical functions. But with Scotus, we just are forced to default to God's law because that relationship is broken. That straightforward relationship between what God says and what causes us to flourish is deliberately is deliberately violated by Scotus in a way that I think may strike a lot of people as less satisfying. But I think there's some value in that because it does highlight that it's not obvious or self-evidently the case that what makes us happy is what God wants us to do, or what causes us to flourish is what God wants us to do. Um, that is a kind of convenient theory, and part of why Aquinas' theory is so popular is that in many ways it's very convenient, but maybe too convenient from the point of view of Scotus. Would Aquinas still allow individuals to be considered as like a unit in their own right, separate from the whole? Or is it because they're all ordered to God, ordered to some higher end, then they just get... Well, for Aquinas, you know, we have a kind of human nature that we are trying to fulfill, right? And because we are human insofar as we're human or insofar as we're men or insofar as we're women, uh, we have a particular nature that we fulfill by cultivating ourselves in light of our purpose, which we can know by observing our nature. And so there's you know, a lot of Aristotelian... Uh, teleology in that, a lot of Stoic, uh, I think, teleology in that. Um, but you're not going to find that kind of thing in Scotus, because for Scotus, what it seems to us 
you know, is what we ought to do is not going to be necessarily what's in the law. And so then it becomes much more important to look at what does the law actually say. Yeah, I, in some ways, I, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to arguments which acknowledge that there are often differences between what looks like the right way to live to a set of people living in a particular period and what is the right way to live. When you're observing nature and what seems to work, oftentimes you will take things that are contingent to be natural. And a lot of natural law theories do this. They kind of observe how people tend to behave or what seems to work in the context in which they're in. And they go, well, that must be natural because that seems to be something that contributes to human flourishing. And then if you have a natural law theory, that can be tied to God. And in this way, whatever is common practice can be naturalized and in the course of being naturalized be equated with God's will. Uh, Scotus prevents that drift from occurring, prevents God from being just turned into a way of describing whatever happens to be going on around you, right? But the cost of doing that is that you end up with uh, a divine law that may just not really have anything to do with flourishing, where you have to embrace the law because it's the law and not because it conforms to human happiness. I think the positive law, as opposed to the natural law in Scotus, is the opposite, like Say you take a law and then you have its opposite. Um, if they're both okay, then it's going to be positive law and not natural law. Whereas for natural law, like the opposite cannot be true at the same time as the law. Does that make sense? It's like non-contradiction. Oh, the positive law is very much grounded on a, a kind of theory of political legitimacy here. A notion of consent coming from the community. And this is something we're, we're seeing in a lot of medieval thinkers that we look at. Some notion of consent coming from community. And some theorists will position this as the way it was before Christianity. Some will argue that it still goes on in some way. We talked during the Bartolus episode about this transferring of the rights of the community to the emperor. Uh, here, we have a similar kind of emphasis on the community consenting to a particular type of state. You know, and this consent... You know, remember, this is the, the Roman concept of consent, which is not uh, consent in the kind of libertarian sense that it often gets bandied about today. Uh, most of the time when we hear the word consent today, it's in, say, the context of uh, whether someone consents to a sexual act, right? That's very much whether an individual is okay with something and it works on an individual uh, by individual basis, and it's very situational, right? Consent is something that an individual gives in this instance and not necessarily in other instances, and it's something that can be revoked at any point you know, in our contemporary discussion. Roman consent is this notion of you know, consensus, of there being a consensus, right? Of uh, there being an agreement, so it doesn't come down to asking particular individuals whether they one at a time consent. It's whether there is a sense of agreement, right? And in Roman political theory, the term consensus is often put next to the word concord, you know, literally a, a concord, an agreement, right? Consensus at concordia. So it doesn't mean that it's a kind of one at a time, you know, checking to see if everybody agrees. A lot of questions about, well, how does a consent theory really work in political theory Start from, well, it's not practical to actually ensure that every single person consents to the government in the way that, you know, a person would consent to a sexual act. 
you know, that notion of consent doesn't seem to be functional at a political level because you need something that can hold. Indeed, Scotus talks about a consent, which is not just a consent to the rule of a particular king, but a rule to uh, consent to a set of secession rules or secession mechanics. You can consent to a king passing down the royal line to an heir. And that can be part of the consent. It can be consented to a political regime type, a, a hereditary monarchy. So it's not just consenting to the rule of a specific person or to a specific person's acts. It is something that is much broader than that uh, and more encompassing. But it's very general. I mean, it's basically tacit, right? You never have to expressly say it. It's just as long as strangers don't, they keep, yeah. Well, see, tacit, the idea of tacit consent is another way of trying to make this contemporary notion of consent into a functional political term, right? You'll say, well, you can't have every individual uh, say, you can't get every individual to say, yes, I consent all the, you know, every, to every instance, every policy, you know, repeatedly all the time. But maybe if we say, well, you're tacitly consenting if you don't move away, or you're tacitly consenting if you, you know, agree to accept the benefits of this structure. You know, these are ways of trying to weasel it and say that there is some version of, you know, the kind of consent that you would have in the sexual relation in politics. But of course, in the sexual relationship, we would not accept tacit consent <laughs> as real consent, right? And similarly, when you try to apply that to politics, people don't like that as consent. Uh, but the, the kind of consent we have here in SCOTUS is not tacit consent. It will often involve positive signs of consent. But these are positive signs that in some way come from the whole population and not necessarily from particular individuals. So, for instance, in ancient Rome, when there's a new Roman emperor, one of the ways that you show that there's a consensus is that all of the cities of the empire, they acclaim the emperor and they send the gift tax. Right. They send a gift tax to acknowledge the new emperor. Right. It's a gift tax. The tax part, it's kind of mandatory. You kind of have to do it because if you didn't do it, it would signal that you don't consent. So you've you've got to do it to show that there's a consensus, but it's a gift. It's freely given because consent is meant to be freely given. Right. So it's a gift tax. It's a giving of consent, but it's done by the city. It's not every single person in the empire goes and says, yes, I agree, you're the emperor. It's that the cities indicate that there is this broad agreement by giving the gift tax. Did you say the cities indicate that? Because that could lead to like an Aristotelian type theory where, you know, the, they start claiming, oh, look, the city has a natural character on its own, separate from the emperor, a bit like Bartolus. And then you can kind of... well. Yeah, at that time, it would be framed more in terms of the rulers of the cities. So the cities are in you know, Greco-Roman political theory. They are uh, ruled by particular sets of people, and they're defined by the people who are ruling, right? The reason that Bartolus has to say that the city is its own prince is because it becomes impossible to say, to identify the city with particular people ruling. If that happens, then the fact that the pe particular people who are ruling in Italian city-states changes all the time. That would cause a lot of trouble for uh, a legitimation narrative that's based on, uh, you know, some specific set of people or group of people ruling. Every time you'd have, you know, one Italian family displace another, you know, you might argue that you no longer have the same political system. You no longer have the same people ruling or the same system ruling, and therefore the city you know, doesn't have legitimate government. 
So in saying the city is its own prince, then regardless of which Italian family is ruling or whether you would call the city an oligarchy or an aristocracy or what have you, uh, or you know, monarchy or a principality or tyranny, regardless of which it would be, you can still say that the city is, is ruling if the city is its own prince. In ancient Roman thought, you don't have that concept that Bartolus introduces of the city as the actor. What you will get is the leading officials in the city, the people who are ruling that city, uh, will indicate, you know, those local elites will indicate that they accede to the consensus, not on a one-to-one basis, but as a group, as the ruling group, that they are part of the consensus. And that's done by having them acting as the rulers of the city, giving the gift tax. It's not a -a one-at-a-time thing where you go around and you ask particular elites in particular cities, do you consent to the new emperor? This notion of having to ask people one at a time, of having to go to the individual and get the individual to give a personal consent, you know, that would not be a, a workable political ideal. It's never, it never has been, and therefore it's never been what's been done. And so when consent was a very you know, powerful political idea, it was a political idea because it had nothing at all to do with that kind of individual one at a time consent. But today we use the term that way. So then when we try to apply it to politics, it doesn't work. And then we go, ah, you know, consent doesn't work. This is a problem. Uh, Well, it's a problem in large part because today we think in terms of individuals instead of these larger, more holistic uh, units. But we did think about, or Scotus did think about um, individuals in terms of property because you have this general idea that peace is important. But then he says you have to add another premise, which is that in a way, individuals are kind of weak because they desire their own better betterment, whatever, uh, compared to the community. Therefore, you have to defend, you know, your own property as opposed to the community's property. So the consent is also, yeah, do I have my possessions intact? And that's about the individual. Well, you only you only get possessions on this theory once it, that comes out of the positive law. So you have you have a community which then gives authority to the ruler. The ruler then makes positive law regarding property, right? So the idea of community precedes the coming into being of property on this view, because you need first community to get political authority. And then once you have political authority, then you can have property, right? Compare this to something like, say, John Locke's theory of property, where an individual comes by, mixes their labor with the land, and then gets a natural property right out of it. I thought it was closer to Locke, though, because Scotus is kind of saying that communal property hurts us after the fall. Once we've sinned, it's like, well, not communal property. You're not talking about that, I guess. Um, No, no, we're not talking about communal property. We're talking about uh, the community is the ultimate basis for property. If the community is the basis for property because the community authorizes the ruler and then the ruler makes positive law, which creates property, Right then you can't obtain property just by mixing your labor with it or relating to it on an individual or personal level in some particular way, right? That wouldn't get you around this question of community. So for Scotus, you've got to start with a community. If you don't have a community, then you can't possibly have property because property has to happen once there's authority and authority has to come out of there existing a community which can give consents, consent um, is that right. is there not individuals in the sense that they have to have maybe not a, a right to property but a right to happiness? 
in SCOTUS? Well, there can't possibly be a right to happiness for individuals because God's law potentially conflicts with what makes us happy. Oh, yeah. natural. You can't naturally know what is happiness, can you? Because it's not like Aquinas or Aristotle where the end is inside your nature. So. Right. This is a funky theory for this reason. And a lot of people got really fed up with it during the, during, uh, you know, the, the Protestant Reformation. And it, it ticks a lot of people off because it is kind of subtle. <laughs> and when you expect it to do the things that you think medieval political theories do, it doesn't quite work the way that you expect it to. It's a little bit funky. And we're used to people who are reacting to Aquinas or reacting to Aquinas' theory and Aristotle's theory and who are doing that kind of teleology. And we're used to Western political theory being you know, very much caught up with all of that. And that just isn't quite how this works. But at least subtle doesn't mean adding on lots of stuff. I mean, you know Occam's razor. Apparently, that uh, used to be called Scotus's rule. I don't know if that's true, but the idea that you don't just add loads of other entities or things on to explain causes. So yeah, yeah. So Occam, we may do an episode at some point on Occam because Occam comes after Scotus and is significantly influenced by. Uh, by what SCOTUS does. But if, if you'll notice, you know, because of the dominance of, of natural law as a political view in the centuries to come, Aquinas's version of scholasticism becomes very important you know, for people like Grotius who are reacting to that and who want a natural law theory that they can do a lot with, that they can use to make a lot of claims. This view just doesn't let you do a lot of the things that later political theorists wanted to do with the concept of the natural. Of course, those things that people tried to do with the concept of the natural didn't work for precisely the kinds of reasons that SCOTUS outlines, that a lot of the things that they tried to identify as natural were not self-evidently you know, analytically obvious. And so disagreements pop up over what counts as natural when you try to expand the concept of the natural beyond that which is self-evident. So most supernatural things like Aquinas saying they're infused virtues and then Scotus saying it's there's nothing infused, it's all natural. Maybe you have a natural disposition towards the supernatural, but that doesn't mean that, I don't know. <laughs> it's, Just because it strikes you as advantageous doesn't mean that it aligns with God's law. That kind of linking of the human, of what seems advantageous to the human with what is just, he really wants to resist that. Uh, and, you know, that said, Scotus's view is very much influenced by Aristotle's and Aquinas's. It very much comes out of those views. So it can frustrate a lot of people because given how scholastic this view otherwise does seem to be, it differs on many quite important points from scholastic accounts. And so you don't see the scholastics who like Thomas Aquinas running with this view. And you also are not going to see the humanists and the Protestants, many of whom are hoping to take the concept of the natural from Aquinas, but broaden it or use it in uh, a, a wider kind of way. They certainly aren't going to like this view because this view says that that is uh, an overexpansion of that concept. And then you've got you know, people following on from Martin Heidegger who don't like this view because they don't like the univocal thing, I think largely because they've misunderstood it. Uh, How do they misunderstand it? They... 
Well, because they think that being and uh, what's natural are the same. So they think that um, what we talk about when we use the term ontology now, when we talk about ontological questions of what exists, uh, a lot of the time people think that ontological discussions are discussions about uh, you know, whether things have the same nature as matter. And I think that, uh, sure, if you think that something can only exist if it has the same nature as matter, then uh, a lot of normative concepts would clearly not exist because they don't have the same nature as matter, right? Uh, and so I think some people view SCOTUS as having claimed that you know, normative concepts, because they have being in the same sense in which matter has being, that they must have the same nature does that make sense? Do you say to Scotus, the, the concepts of what we ought to do have being in the same way that what? Sorry? That they have normative concepts for Scotus have being in precisely the same way in which matter has being, but matter has a different nature from those concepts. So they both have being because being is just the widest category. Metaphysically. Right. Being for SCOTUS is the widest category. And so a lot of the time when we're using being in ontological discussions in contemporary philosophy, we don't use being as widely as SCOTUS uses being. So then when we see the word being in SCOTUS's work and we see him claiming that there's a univocal account of being, we think that he's suggesting the same nature because we don't have a notion of being that is as wide or as expansive or all-encompassing as Scotus's notion of being. Because we don't have that wider concept of being, when we see univocal being in Scotus, we think that he's talking about nature. And then he strikes us as stupid, and we call him a dunce. Be but that's because we have missed this subtlety, which is that for Scotus, there's a gap there between nature and being. To say that you have different natures uh, doesn't mean that something doesn't have being. Being is the, is the widest possible category. And the reason that he ha insists on saying that being is the widest possible category is because if we just say that what uh, is, is matter exists only in an analogical way to the way that God exists, that implies there needs to be some other concept of being that God has that isn't based on uh, our in interaction with the sensibles. And for Scotus, all of our abstractions have to come from our interaction with the sensibles. So if we say that God exists in a way that's only analogical, for Scotus, that weakens our sense in which God exists. Because we then have this conceptual problem of not having some other concept of being that is analogous. All we're able to say is that God is analogically like. So he wants to go beyond saying that God is analogically like matter. He wants to say that God has being in the same sense in which matter has being. But that does not mean that he's claiming that God is matter or has the nature of matter. And a lot of people think that it implies that he's saying that God has the same nature as matter. And that's the thing that I think is the misreading. But to... to have this view, you have to be flexible enough with your concepts to be able to distinguish being from nature in a way that is very difficult, I think, especially for contemporary people who have come up in a period when, you know, a lot of the time when people say God exists or God doesn't exist, they're talking about whether God is, is made of matter 
or whether matter is made of God. It's very much about the nature of matter and whether God has the nature of matter. People think that when you're asking the does God exist question, you're asking, does God have the nature of matter? Uh, and, And that's not the question as far as SCOTUS is concerned. It's does God have being, right? It's just if, if God's being is like uh, a more intense version of our being, then why isn't, why isn't being good? Why doesn't being take part well, in so goodness? Or? Being infinite being would include infinite goodness insofar as it, to be good, you have to be it. So, or to be powerful, you have to be it. So the concept of being is, for SCOTUS needs to be there before you can bring in other things. But... But that can lead some people to think that if, say, uh, God doesn't have the same nature as matter, then all abstractions related to God, like good or truth or what have you, that all of those don't work because they don't have the same nature as matter. And this is, I think, the confusion that it's not just a confusion that people have when they look at SCOTUS. I think this is a, a, a popular confusion in discussions about normative concepts and whether, you know, there's, you know, whether debates about moral realism, for instance, where people want to say, well, if there aren't moral particles that are, you know, have the same nature as matter, then there can't be such a thing as the good. Those people are having an ontological debate, which treats being as if it were a question of nature, of whether morality has the same nature as, um, as as creatures or as matter. And this is this is the thing. When we're talking about God, we're talking about an abstraction that is often associated with other abstractions like the good or truth. You know, people will say things like God is truth or God is love or God is beauty, right? So if you are to have any of these abstractions, then there has to be a sense in which uh, if you're going to say that there is such a thing, for Scotus, when you're saying there is such a thing, you're invoking a concept of being to say that. You have to be invoking a concept of being because otherwise, what else would you be invoking when you say that God exists or truth exists or love exists or the good exists? But that doesn't mean that you're saying that it has the same nature as matter. You're saying that it, you're, you're using the same concept, the concept of being, the overarching umbrella term of being that you use when you say, you know, that mouse, uh, mice exist. Maybe not that mouse. Maybe that mouse would involve uh, an intuitive, an intuitive move. But to say that mice exist, or to say that ants exist, right? But then it sounds like you're saying things are good because they have being, like they because they participate in being, like a Platonist, um, and they can return well, back to. They have to. They have to. To be able to say that they exist, we have to be able to use the same notion of being. Now, that notion of being, doesn't necess- it doesn't necessarily mean that every particular thing that has being is good. Uh, not necessarily, or at least not you know, in all time, circumstances, respects. Uh, because again, there's a, a break here between what exists and what its position is vis-a-vis God's laws. But the idea is that because God, like God, chose to create out of love, not uh, not as like punishment for eating the apple in the Garden of Eden. So there is that assumption that um, it is 
things are good because they have like being. But I thought the whole point is well. If if they're good, it's not to do with advantage. If they're good, you know what is good depends on what God's law is. God can, and this is the part of of Scotus which is divine command theory. Divine command theory doesn't apply to natural law, but it does apply to all the other discretionary stuff. So when we're talking about what's good, if you start trying to evaluate it from the standpoint of what's advantageous to the human, for Scotus, you're missing it. Good is is to be associated with what's just, i.e. what accords with God's laws. So God decides what is good, and whether or not that makes sense to us or accords with what we feel is advantageous for us or helps us to flourish, uh, you know, that's, you you know, may or may not be the case. So God is, you know, the universe is good because God makes it, says that it's good in these other respects. Not because you or I look at the universe and deduce that it accords with our advantage. We can't hold God to the standard of human advantage and judge God's works by that standard. No, but when, when uh, we were still merely possible before being created... God selected that as an option. It's like, oh, okay, let's select the plan that has humans being able to judge things on that basis as, as good or bad on human terms without a reference to God. So- yes, but that doesn't mean that uh, when we do that, that we are uh, following God's law because we can do things on the basis of what seems advantageous to us that violate God's law for Scotus. That, that's why he draws that distinction between advantage and, and justice. So therefore, it, we have, and this is where freedom comes in. As human beings, we have the freedom to either do what is advantageous for us or to do what is just, what accords with God's law. So we can't say, oh, well, God gave us the capacity to think in terms of advantage. Therefore, it can't possibly be wrong for us to pursue our advantage. No, no, no. God could give us the capacity to think about what's advantageous to us and make it against his law for us to pursue it. God can do whatever he wants, right? That doesn't mean that you can infer that because this is what your brain is telling you is advantageous, that your reason is according with what God wants. You don't get to presume that reason goes along with God's intentions <laughs> or that you can, through human reason, know God's intentions about the discretionary law that God makes. Yeah, but God's not forced by, yeah, by that. Yeah. Whereas Aquinas's view puts God in a position that is a little bit more functional which produces a theory that is very workable and tractable in the Middle Ages in particular places where this kind of stuff is widely disseminated and institutionally backed, right? But for for Scotus, the fact that it's convenient to structure it that way, it does not at all make it the case. Even though, like, for example, when you say, oh, God says there will be humans, that's like a contingent truth, but then... I guess what I'm saying is when God's, when it turns out humans are rational, that's a necessary truth. It's a different thing. It's like. Right. But humans are able to know what is advantageous and they're able to, to know what's just. And so far as God tells them what the law is. Right. So God tells you what the law is. You don't know why the law is what it is. You don't understand the law, but you, you know, know what it is. So God tells you what the law is, and God allows you to deduce your advantage. And then for SCOTUS, you have the freedom to choose which to do. And that's where human freedom is. 
But if you choose to pursue what's advantageous, you will not necessarily be pursuing God's law. And if you try to persuade yourself that you are through some argument like Aquinas's, that may seem very convenient to you, but it's going to carry you away from God's law as far as Scotus is concerned. But then why are there so many, not so many, but there's examples of secular texts or arguments in Scotus where, for example, it's right for someone to be a merchant or, you know, just to pursue an income that brings good to the state. Very kind of natural. Right. So then at that point, we're talking about positive law. So positive law is not natural law and positive law is not God's law. Positive law is stuff that the community through the process of consensus decides. And for Scotus, there's a, you know, a rich role for that. But we don't have to pretend that that positive law is natural law or is God's law or in some way comes out of those things. The positive law that comes out of the consensus of the community may not accord with uh, God's law. It may accord with advantage instead of with God's law. Uh, Natural law is going to have very little to do with positive law because natural law is concerned with what's self-evident and therefore doesn't really require a community decision. (laughs) If it requires a community decision, that's because it wasn't obvious. (laughs) And therefore can't be part of natural law. Is it unhistorical to say that... (laughs) No one in the Middle Ages thought that God wasn't self-evident. Even Franciscan monks surely doubted because the, the whole point of theology is to help to expel ignorance about that. So, Well, maybe that's why you've got to have the, the commandments. You have to be made familiar with them. You have to have the sense experience of, of being given them. But then once you're given them, it should strike you as self-evident. So you can explain the, you know, the pagan who did not hear the commandment, but as soon as you hear it, then it ought to be self-evident. It's just that there's no humans, there's no moral truths. So if there are humans, that's enough for there to be moral truths, whether or not God wills it or not. Well, you know, we might have that kind of view, but that doesn't seem to be what Scotus thinks. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Because Scotus really positions God as, you know, know, maybe God is, is making laws that accord with your advantage and maybe not. But it's still good is whatever God decides. So you're still supposed to do whatever it is. That's in the law, in the divine law. Yeah, God decided to create humans, and humans can't will it to be true that there are no moral truths. Therefore, God will it true that there are moral truths, or not? (laughs) Well, you you can't infer from what God does on Scotus's view what God's intentions are, right? So there's a lot of, of trying to infer, you know, intention. And there's acknowledgement, of course, in Aquinas's view, that what we can know of natural law is not the same as, you know, divine law. But uh, there's a lot of trying to infer things on the basis of teleology in you know, standard Aristotelian political theory. By breaking advantage loose from justice, uh, by making a separation between those things, Scotus makes it a lot harder to play that kind of game of inferring. And so you know, he gets accused of hair splitting and not... not uh, you're not going along with things. Scotus will, will stop and go, well, wait a minute, and force you to have this very uh, careful argument. And it has some advantages and it has some disadvantages. 
Uh, you know, in terms of you're forced to make positive law almost an entirely separate kind of thing on this account. You're not able to just link positive law in with natural law or with God's law in any kind of straightforward way here. There's a clear scope for a political space that is not straightforwardly coming out of God or coming out of uh, natural law. You know, and for medieval Catholics who want the political system to be something which emerges out of natural law, that's going to be very frustrating. Uh, however, by not doing that, you're able to avoid the uh, lapsing into broadening natural law out until it includes whatever it is that you want. But maybe that is so characteristic of, especially as we start to move into the early modern period, so many accounts of the natural and natural law. Yeah. If I say this, it could just confuse it more, but because of university, surely the concept we use has to be the same as the supernatural concept. Otherwise, they wouldn't be univocal. Or is it because of sin? Sin corrupts nature. So I don't know. Well, being is very wide. You know, for it to be univocal, it's got to be the case that being is nice and wide and, and can include lots of different natures underneath it. And I think that the resistance to being as the univocal concept comes from not wanting to read being as widely as it needs to be read for the univocal move to work. It only works if you read it very widely and make being a rather thin thing, a very thin ontological basis for getting going. But then people try to thicken it and try to say that being is is more substantive and more concrete and includes more of, of other concepts like nature. And if you try to make being fat like that, then it doesn't work as well as a as a thin, broad thing. I mean, this is often true with concepts. When you make a concept fat, it's more satisfying, but it only works on a narrower terrain. And then when you try to take it off that terrain, it doesn't work. When we talk about the sense in which matter exists, we're often thinking about existence or being in a fat, materialist kind of way. And then when we try to apply it to concepts like the good or beauty or truth, it's not going to fit because it's, it's too defined to stretch and accommodate these other things that may exist but have a very different nature. You know, oftentimes we say things casually like, well, the good exists, but in a different sense from the sense in which uh, matter exists. And Scotus wants to deny that. It's not that it exists in a different sense. It exists in a same sense, but has a different nature. Is that dimension or like another dimension of reality? I don't know. Whole order. We're not. To, yeah. Even talking about dimensions makes it sound like we're talking about matter. Really? It makes it sound like we're talking about nature. You know, to say dimension. Right. Uh, this is, it's a very subtle move and it's a move that is very easy to, you know, you have to really be working your brain a little bit to catch the difference here. No, I definitely don't uh, get it. <laughs> and that I think is the, I think that's the weakness of the view is that it's easy for, uh, when you say, well, uh, univocal, uh, use of being, it's easy for people to want to read being as thicker than this account wants to read it. We really, really, especially in modern times, like to read being as, as having the same nature as matter. Yeah. And that's just, that's not this view. That's not this view. It may be other people's views, but not this one. So if you want to understand John Duns Scotus, you got to make that distinction. But we're over an hour now. 
And yeah, we could go over these subtleties a lot, and they're still going to be a little bit difficult, I think, to grasp unless you're you're calm and at peace and you know really ready to to play abstractions with the subtle doctor. <laughs> so we'll call it a day. Thank you guys so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye bye.